Hi, everyone. This is Laura Free, host of Amended, a podcast from Humanities New York. The next and final episode of our series is coming out next week. But today, we have a special bonus episode for you. When our team set out to make Amended, one of our inspirations was a podcast called Seen on Radio. Season four of Seen on Radio was called The Land That Never Was, and it looked at the nation's history from its beginnings to the present to understand the deep-rooted challenges that American democracy has never solved. What you're about to hear is an incredibly moving episode called Freedom Summer. It's about the summer of 1964. Almost 100 years earlier, the 15th Amendment was passed to prevent voter discrimination based on race. This was followed in 1920 by the 19th Amendment, which was supposed to do the same for women. But as we've discussed on this show, these were incomplete victories. States invented other means, like poll taxes and literacy tests, to disenfranchise Black Southern voters. For generations, activists rose up to fight these discriminatory laws. And in 1964, things reached a boiling point. About a 1,000 young Americans, Black and white, led a campaign in Mississippi where they registered Black voters and trained emerging activists in how to challenge the racist political system. When they did this, the activists put themselves directly in the path of white supremacist violence, sacrificing their safety and, in some cases, their lives. Their actions forced the federal government to admit that the Constitution as written was still allowing unchecked voter discrimination, and then to finally do something about it. Now here's the hosts of Seen on Radio, John Buen and Chenjerai Kumanika. Please note that the Freedom Summer episode was originally released about a year ago, so you'll hear a few references to the early days of the pandemic and to the 2020 elections. A content warning. This episode includes descriptions of intense violence and the use of a racial slur. So, John, when you look at history the way that we're looking at it in this series, sometimes I start to get tempted to make really sloppy historical comparisons. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that's easy to do. It, It is easy to do. What's that expression? History doesn't repeat itself, but it does often rhyme. And it's easy to get carried away, uh... (laughs) trying to hear those rhymes. In a scholarly world, we learn to have nuance and not to do that. But, you know, sometimes I I myself have been guilty. You know, like I was, I worked on this podcast on Civil about the Civil War. And during that time, I was like, you know, everything was like, it was just, everything's just like 1861. You know, I mean, (laughs) I'd be like at dinner parties and people are like, Chinge, we get it. To understand anything, (laughs) like a movie, you know, it's like we have to go back to the 19th century. We understand. (laughs) Yeah. Or, you know, the United States today is Germany, 1933. Uh, Right. Yeah. Well, and maybe (laughs) it is. Some days it seems to be. But yeah, you you tried not to get too carried away um, reading the newspaper every morning. Absolutely. You know, but that said. I do think it's really important to think about the themes and continuities um, and lessons that we can really learn from history. And today's episode has me thinking about political parties, Mm -hmm. right? And this kind of never ending struggle that they have between what gets called party unity or like maintaining a big tent. And then on the other hand, really trying to stick to or imagine sort of more ambitious or even radical policy decisions that vulnerable groups within the base of the party care about. Yeah, and, and you know, both major parties in the U.S. have this struggle, 
really all the time to some extent. But then sometimes the tension kind of gets more cranked up than at other times. Um, mm. And as we're talking here in 2020, there's an intense struggle within the Democratic Party in particular. You know, do you reach toward the middle or even to the right to form a coalition with people who, you know, only kind of sort of agree with you on some things? Or do you push, in the case of the Democrats, a more sharply progressive agenda? Maybe because you think that's the winning strategy or because you just don't want to make all those compromises. And I mean, to me, it just always seems like looking at the Democratic Party, there's always like a faction pulling it in the wrong direction in history. So, for example, think of the Democratic Party of the 1960s, right? What we're going to talk about. Yep. I mean, it had changed a lot since the 1860s when it was the pro-slavery, pro-secession party, right? Because, I mean, after the New Deal and liberal policies under Truman and Kennedy, now it's the political home of most working class people, right? Like the Democratic Party is where most working class people of every race and identity, including black people, are. Yeah. But you still got this coalition that includes all these elected politicians down in the South where one party apartheid Jim Crow politics are still explicitly in force. Right. And leaders of the Democratic Party, the National Party, still think they have to answer to those people in order to keep this coalition together. And this is incredibly frustrating to black people, especially black people living in those southern states. Yeah. So, like, that's the tension. You see it then. And I think today, right, a lot of Democrats think of the choice as one between a status quo that they're kind of used to, maybe it's not perfect, or some other authoritarian, like, Republican monster. But what I think they forget is that for some groups, the status quo, that, that idea of normal, is totally unacceptable for for people, you know what I mean, and, and even deadly. Mm. And it's also was like that in 1964. That's what makes it so interesting for me. Right. Mm. Because what they were facing then was like brutal repression. And they just felt like the stubbornness and these incremental arguments were coming at the cost of their lives. Yeah. I mean, just going back to there, it was really very intense. I almost wish we could hear from somebody who like lived through that time. Oh, well, let's see. Actually, I, I think I may have an old piece of audio tape lying around here somewhere. Check this out. Check one, two. Mr. John Lewis, what, were you involved in the discussions about whether to do, whether to do the summer project to invite in uh, Northerners? Well, at the time of the planning for the Mississippi Summer Project in 1964, I was the national chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So I was involved in it. Okay, so just to make this clear, that's you and then a younger John Lewis more than 25 years ago in 1994? That's right. Yep. Okay. And, you, and, you, and you're making a documentary about this plan to force the Democratic Party to kind of address its own shit. <laughs> yes. So 1994, and I'm making a documentary about 1964 and what came to be called Freedom Summer. Um, of course, a lot of people have heard that term, but I think a lot of people may not know a lot about what happened that summer. And of course, now we're coming up on 60 years since Freedom Summer. So, you know, it feels lucky that I was able to talk to a bunch of the people involved back then uh, because some of those folks are no longer with us, um, though many still are, thankfully. 
but I interviewed a few dozen people who took part in this really pretty radical organizing effort in 64. Right. So 1964, you have America still calling itself a democracy, but all the way after, you know, like the 15th Amendment and all these other things, right? The Democratic Party in Mississippi and other places won't even let black folks vote, much less participate as elected officials. Mm-hmm. And the National Party really isn't doing anything. Yeah. Not only was the party not doing much to stand up for political rights of black people, it was literally not protecting them from widespread racist violence, especially in places like Mississippi. So what do the people leading the civil rights movement in Mississippi do? They come up with a plan that is really innovative and creative, but also extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. But it's a plan to force the Democratic Party to stop having it both ways and choose a side once and for all. From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, this is Seen on Radio, Season 4, Episode 7 in our series on democracy in America. We call the series The Land That Never Has Been Yet. I'm John Bewin, producer and host of the show. Dr. Chenjirai Kumanyika, whose voice you were just hearing, is my collaborator on the series. He's a journalism and media studies professor at Rutgers, an artist, podcaster, organizer, pie chef, and baker of zucchini bread. He'll be back again later to help me sort things out. This episode, 1964, Mississippi, and really the USA. We took apart the radio documentary I made in the 90s and updated and rebuilt it for this season using the interviews that my co-producer Kate Cavett and I recorded back then. Deep into the 20th century, The struggle was still very much on for something resembling a multiracial democracy in the U.S., a struggle led by black Americans and their accomplices of all shades. What did those young people accomplish that summer? And in what they failed to achieve, what hard truths about the United States did they uncover yet again? Nobody called it Freedom Summer until after it was over. To the people who organized it, it was just the Mississippi Summer Project. About a thousand mostly young Americans, black and white, came together to place themselves in the path of white supremacist power and violence. Lawrence Guiot was on the staff of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the lead organization behind the project. The 64 Summer Project was the most creative, concentrated, multi-layered attack on oppression in this country. There's nothing to compare with it because you brought in different people with different talents for different reasons and it was a sustained fight and there was no middle ground. You were either for change or you opposed change. In the early 1960s, white Mississippi held most of its black residents in a kind of serfdom. Many worked on cotton farms like their enslaved ancestors, legally free to come and go, but with no real options for making a living. Sharecropping and tenant farming arrangements paid subsistence wages, if that. Public education was separate and deeply unequal. The state, which spent less on education than any other, 
funded black schools at a fraction of what it spent on white schools. I guess I was born in it. You know, I was born in the movement. The day I was born, I was born black. Unita Blackwell was born in 1933. She lived all her life near the Mississippi River in Myersville. So all my life, I knew something was wrong, you know, with with the way that uh, people perceived me as a black person because I was born in Mississippi Delta. Until 1961, people doing civil rights organizing in Mississippi did it in secret. That's how dangerous it was. I grew up in rural Alabama, uh, about 50 miles from Montgomery, uh, near a little place called Troy. Uh, So I had seen segregation and racial discrimination. My own mother and my own father could not register to vote. John Lewis said he first went to Mississippi as a freedom rider at age 21. You know, in spite of growing up in Alabama, uh, where, you know, it's not too much different, but Mississippi, it was just, this was the, the last place. Uh, when you cross that line, that state line, and go from the state of Alabama over into Mississippi, it just a sense of something like the climate change. The air got warmer and your heart started beating faster. He was in a different place where too many people had died, too many bodies had been found, uh, black bodies in the Pearl River or the Tallahatchie River in the state of Mississippi. Starting in 1961, a few young staff members with SNCC ventured into the state. They began coaxing black people to go to their county courthouse to try to register to vote. The system designed back in 1890 to prevent black people from voting was still in place. State laws gave county registrars, all of them white, discretion to decide who could become a registered voter based on a literacy test that the registrars could easily manipulate. They often approved illiterate white people and rejected almost all black people regardless of their actual literacy. When Unita Blackwell and a few other local black folks went to register in Myersville, a white mob met them at the courthouse. So that courthouse that we weren't allowed to go in unless it was time to go over there and pay your tax or something like that. You didn't go, and you went in the back door. So we was to go to that side back to try to get in. And, and the look on the whites' faces, they, was, they were just red, you know, and, and the anger and the hate. And we stood there, and I got very angry that day and determined or something happened to me, and I decided nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Because we didn't have nothing. And you were going to die anyway. Because they're standing there with guns and you hadn't done nothing. And um, so I went, I went to try to register to vote. Ms. Blackwell was turned away without being physically attacked. But some black people who tried to register in the state were beaten, jailed, even murdered. In June of 1963, an avowed racist named Byron De La Beckwith fired a single bullet through the heart of Medgar Evers, Mississippi leader of the NAACP, as Evers walked into his house in Jackson. Evers was a World War II veteran and the father of three young children. For white Americans in deep, willful denial about systemic white supremacy, here was another wake-up call. The national leader of the NAACP, Roy Wilkins, at a press conference. We view this as a cold, brutal, deliberate, 
killing in a savage, uncivilized state. The most savage, the most uncivilized state in the entire 50 states. When Mega was assassinated, it focused a lot of national attention on Mississippi. And various individuals and groups were considering doing something. The leader of SNCC's efforts in Mississippi was Bob Moses. He was just 29 in 1964, but that made him older than most members of SNCC. Moses grew up in Harlem. He'd earned a master's degree in philosophy from Harvard, and he was known for being thoughtful and soft-spoken, as well as courageous. He led those early efforts to register black voters in Mississippi. He'd been beaten badly and survived a sniper attack. Moses said it was the assassination of Evers that drew the involvement of key white collaborators. Allard Lowenstein, a political activist from New Jersey who would later serve a term in Congress, and Robert Spike, who led a commission on race for the National Council of Churches. Because certainly Al's recruitment through his whole network of white students across the country, and then Spike's support through the National Council of Churches were two critical ingredients in the whole idea of having the country take a look at firsthand Mississippi. In the fall of 1963, Moses and his collaborators proposed a massive project for the following summer. The centerpiece was a plan to launch an alternative political party as a challenge to Mississippi's closed, racist, one-party system. The organizers planned to invite up to a thousand mostly white volunteers from Northern universities to help with the project and to try to register black voters. The plan to bring in a lot of white students raised controversy inside the movement. SNCC was founded in 1960 under the leadership of civil rights activist Ella Baker. It was an outgrowth of the student lunch counter sit-ins in places like Nashville, Tennessee and Greensboro, North Carolina. Its leaders were black, but SNCC was consciously integrated. It had a few white staff members from its beginnings. Still, for the mostly black SNCC staff in Mississippi, the proposed infusion of white volunteers led to sharp debate. I was opposed to the idea of bringing in massive numbers of people from the North. Hollis Watkins grew up in Lincoln County, Mississippi. He was one of the first in the state to join SNCC in 1961 when he was 19. Hollis said what he cared most about was the painstaking work that civil rights workers were doing with black Mississippians themselves. I saw people who had began to take initiative for themselves and acting on those decisions that they made. And to me, this was growth. And deep down within, I felt that young people coming from the North, who for the most part perhaps felt that they were better than we from the South, who felt that they had to be on the fast track to get certain things done because they would only be here for a short period of time. I felt that these people would overshadow the efforts of the people from Mississippi and would retard 
that development and growth that had already began to take place. What, what was your response to that argument? Mine was very simple. John Lewis, then the national chair of SNCC, understood the concern raised by Hollis Watkins and others, but he thought the summer project was a risk worth taking. We had an opportunity to educate America that it would demonstrate that we could build a truly interracial democracy in America, to have young, local, primary poor blacks working both primarily middle-class white students from the North, uh, side by side. It was something I think that we had to try. We hadn't been down that road before. Either way, I mean, it was damned if you do, damned if you don't, that's all. And, but that was Mississippi. Bob Moses and the rest of the SNCC staff in Mississippi continued this debate into early 1964, when one more death of a black man tipped the scales. That time of year up in that part of the country, like January, a lot of people do night hunting and stuff up there, so it's not unusual to hear gunshots in January at night. And we lived a little ways off the road, too, you know. Henry Allen was 18 years old in early 1964 when someone came for his father, Lewis, at their place outside of Liberty, Mississippi. Lewis Allen was a logger and farmer. He'd been a witness two years earlier when another black farmer, Herbert Lee, was murdered for trying to register black voters. So, first, the Herbert Lee story. A white state representative, E.H. Hurst, confronted Lee in the fall of 1961. Lee and Hearst were neighbors, and they'd been childhood friends, but Lee had stepped out of his place. He'd started working with members of SNCC on voter registration efforts, and that infuriated E.H. Hearst. They argued that day, and Hearst shot Lee in the head in front of more than a dozen people, including Lewis Allen. Hearst told police that Lee had threatened him, so he'd shot him in self-defense. The black witnesses, including Lewis Allen, went along with that story, knowing what could happen to a black person who testified against a white man in Mississippi. But later, Lewis Allen quietly told a few people that the self-defense story was a lie. Hearst had shot Lee with no provocation. Allen did not testify against Hearst, but word spread that he'd spoken the truth about the murder, and local police and other white men started harassing and threatening him. Civil rights activists told the FBI that Lewis Allen was in danger, but the agency did not protect him. On a January night, his son Henry came home from a date and found Lewis in the front yard. Oh, he was just mutilated. I meant to shoot a person in the head, you know, with a shotgun at close range. I meant just, just chaos, man. Just chaos, you know. Yeah, I never wanted my mom and my little sister to, even, to ever see him. My mama wanted to go down to that road, but she'd have stroked out. She'd have probably died right there, you know? Just too much to look at. Somebody that close to you, because, you know, we was close people, you know? No one was ever charged with the murder. Bob Moses and other members of the SNCC staff were in Hattiesburg discussing whether to go ahead with the summer project when the news came. Yeah, it came down. It was my decision to move it. Um, and what moved me was Lewis's murder. That was it. I decided that what was important for us in Mississippi was to see if we could break the back 
of the state politically. A civil rights coalition led by SNCC and the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, announced plans for what would come to be called Freedom Summer, a peaceful program to bring democracy to Mississippi. Besides college students and teachers, several hundred lawyers, medical professionals, and clergy would descend on the state. White Mississippi politicians and many of the state's white journalists denounced what they called an invasion by outside agitators. Police departments hired more officers and bought riot gear. The Ku Klux Klan and another racist group, the White Citizens Council, issued threats. In June, hundreds of mostly white northern college students gathered in Oxford, Ohio, for week-long training sessions sponsored by the National Council of Churches. We had to tell these young people exactly what they were getting ready to get involved in. Hollis Watkins helped with the training of the Northern Volunteers. If they were coming to Mississippi, they had to be prepared for at least three things. They had to be prepared to go to jail, they had to be prepared to be beaten, and they had to be prepared to be killed. And if they were not prepared for either one or all three of those, then they probably should reconsider coming to Mississippi. SNCC and CORE staff lectured the white students on voter registration techniques and nonviolent philosophy. Bob Zellner, a white SNCC staff member from Alabama, remembers the volunteers were also given rules for survival in the segregated South. No interracial groups uh, traveling, day or night, uh, unless absolutely necessary. And if that, if that happened, only one uh, group would be, whoever was in the minority would be hidden, covered up with blankets, laying on the floorboards, whatever. Training in jail procedures. Uh, if you're released from jail at odd hours and so forth, there's not somebody there, refused to leave. People had done that uh, before and disappeared, men killed. People did that afterwards, disappeared and so forth. The training sessions foreshadowed the violence that would come but also the racial and cultural gaps among the Summer Project workers. Some African-American SNCC staff members were traumatized and angry after several years in what felt like a war zone. They saw the white students as naive idealists off on a summer adventure. Robbie Osman was a 19-year-old volunteer from New York City. He remembered detention burst open one day during the training in Ohio when SNCC staff members showed a film clip, a Mississippi registrar turning away black people trying to become voters. Someone had tried to register and he was sending them back and being vaguely threatening. And it seemed to us, the young white college students, that this guy was as ridiculous, as pathetic, as caricature uh, racist as we ever expected to see. And we laughed. And to our complete surprise, because we, I think... I can speak for myself at least, I really didn't expect it. This horrified the SNCC veterans. Folks stood up and said, how can we go to Mississippi with you? I mean, how can we put our lives on the line with you guys? You really don't have a clue as to what's going on, do you? You know, you really don't know what this guy represents in the context in which he really lives. And um, I think it was a moment in which we all had to stop and realize the gap between us. If we were to reach across it, it was going to take a lot of reaching. 
On June 21st, the day after the first Northern Volunteers arrived in Mississippi, three young civil rights workers disappeared after being pulled over by a sheriff's deputy near the small town of Philadelphia. One of the men was James Cheney, a 21-year-old black Mississippian and a staff member with CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. His mother, Fannie Lee Cheney, was interviewed in 1965. Well, I knew it was something had happened to my child because I didn't care where he went. He'd tell me where he gone, and when he get there, if he didn't write me a letter, uh, called me if he was just going to be gone for a few days. He would always call me and say, I'll be there since and such a time, Mommy. I'm, I'm on my way, or something like that. But I, all that money, that Sunday night, and that money, I mean, I just knew it was something wrong. He was somewhere where he couldn't get in touch with Unlike Herbert Lee and Lewis Allen and other black Mississippians whose murders went unreported outside the state, James Cheney was traveling with two young white men from New York fellow Corps staff member Michael Schwerner, and summer volunteer Andrew Goodman. The federal response this time led Mississippi Governor Paul Johnson to hold a press conference. President Johnson has ordered 200 Marines and eight helicopters to join in the search for three civil rights workers missing in Mississippi. Their presence here is indeed a surprise to me. The bodies of the three young men were found six weeks later, buried under a red clay dam. Mississippi authorities failed to indict anyone for the killings. The federal government eventually convicted seven white men in 1967, including Neshoba County Sheriff's Deputy Cecil Price. None of those men served more than six years in prison. Another Klan leader involved in the murders, Edgar Ray Killen, was convicted 41 years later in 2005. He died in prison in 2018. The nation's response to the killing of white civil rights workers drove home a central point of Freedom Summer. Volunteer Robbie Osman told me that for the first time, he really grasped the double standard that valued white lives more than black lives. A double standard not just in the South, but embedded in U.S. culture. The very reason that we were there as white college students was that unless the country's attention was focused by by the presence of those people that this country was accustomed to caring about, namely white college students, um, nothing would happen. And if it was only people who this country uh, was not accustomed to caring about, namely black Mississippians, then nothing would happen. And I think that what embarrasses me is the extent to which I was capable of forgetting or underestimating that. I'm, it's not that I didn't know it. It's that I didn't feel it. You would look out there and the highway patrol would be sitting there in white and police would be right here and they would always be, because this was the corner, you know, where I live. During the summer of 1964, Unita Blackwell's home became a focal point for civil rights activity. As project director for Issaquina County in the Delta, Blackwell had summer volunteers sleep on the floor of her two-room house, and she oversaw the county's voter registration efforts. Because it was our daily operation. You know, it wasn't like you was at home and going to prepare, uh, get up and clean up your house and uh, 
and uh, do a meal and sit around and talk to people or go to work or something. This was it. You know, you ate, you slept, you did everything in terms of voter registration. Volunteer Joe Morse of Minnesota and Mississippian Rosie Head were among those who spent the summer looking for potential black voters and members for the new Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, so it meant going, going door to door. Uh, usually we were in pairs. Uh, well, we were always in pairs. Uh, usually a black person and a white person. We would go from house to house and talk to people and try to encourage them, you know, to come out for meetings and explain to them how they could get registered to vote and what, you know, good it would do them if they could get registered. There'd be a home on the side of the road and you'd have to park your car and you knew that if anybody came by while you were parked there, if it was anybody who was related to the Klan or the White Citizens Council or some racist, they'd know your car and they'd know your license plate. So you were immediately putting the people you were talking to at risk. Uh, a lot of time we would get put out of the people how they wouldn't let us pass the gate or they'll just say uh, they didn't want to talk to us, they didn't want to be involved in the mess and they would just be afraid to talk to us. On the surface, the voter registration drive failed. Out of half a million black Mississippians of voting age, fewer than 2,000 were approved as voters during Freedom Summer. But that was expected. The point was to show the country how the state systematically disenfranchised black voters. At the same time, though, a lot more black people signed up for the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which would soon make history at the Democratic National Convention. The voter registration drive during Freedom Summer had another purpose besides shining a light on the disenfranchisement of black people. It also showed the nation how white people behaved when black Mississippians tried to assert their rights as citizens. For several years, civil rights workers in the state had asked the federal government for protection with no success. Michael Sayer was a young white man from New York and a staff member with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He recalls that the FBI, under Director J. Edgar Hoover, was well aware of Klan violence against black Mississippians in fact, the FBI had informants inside the Klan. But the FBI policy wasn't to intervene and prevent the Klan from doing what it was doing. It was simply to report back to the FBI so the FBI could be on top of the knowledge game. But we're talking about J. Edgar Hoover here, who was very hostile to the idea of independent black political activity. During Freedom Summer, under pressure from President Johnson, the FBI opened an office in Jackson, but that didn't stop the abuse or the terrorism. Mississippi police arrested more than a thousand civil rights workers during the summer. White supremacists burned down more than 60 black churches and homes, beat up 80 civil rights workers, and fired dozens of shots into the cars and offices of Freedom Summer workers. You came to uh, see white faces as something to fear. Dean Zimmerman was a white volunteer from North Dakota. And of course then you come to realize that this is the, this is the reality of blacks every day of their lives, especially in that situation. That As you encounter a white face, you immediately, your body takes on a whole different posture, your mind becomes very alert, you are 
constantly on the lookout for what you may have to do in a big hurry just to survive. Fear was there, but I must say it did not stop anything. I can't um, recall anyone saying that I'm afraid I'm not going to do it. Dory Ladner was a Mississippian, already a veteran SNCC staff member by 1964, when she turned 22. During Freedom Summer, she was project director at SNCC's office in Natchez, where she says she spent sleepless nights taking threatening phone calls from white supremacists. I suffer from um, trying to dodge white men in pickup trucks, uh, worry about whether or not someone was going to come and bomb the house where we were sleeping, whether or not we were going to get killed. And I don't like to ride in front seats of cars right now because I couldn't drive during that time, and I was always afraid of a drive-by shooting. Those were my problems. Ladner told us the stress was so great, she vomited most nights after eating dinner. For some civil rights workers, the fears came horribly true. Matt Suarez was on the staff of the Congress of Racial Equality. He remembers one night, someone made the mistake of bringing a white volunteer to an organizing meeting in the town of Canton, just outside of Jackson. We had certain areas where we knew that if a black guy and a white woman were seen together, it was almost certain death. At that time, Canton, Mississippi was one of those places. Word got out that a white woman was in the meeting with black men, and a white mob, including men from the sheriff's department, gathered outside. Corps staff members decided to send out several black men in one car to draw the mob away, and then sneak the white woman out in another car. Matt Suarez and another Corps staff member rode in the decoy vehicle with George Raymond, who was a leader of Corps in Mississippi. And about 50 pickup trucks got behind us with white boys hanging off the running bulls with chains and pipes and baseball bats and they screaming, killing niggas, you know, and all of this crap. And a highway patrolman and a sheriff's deputy. And you have to understand, these, this was a, a two-lane highway, one lane in each direction. They got in both lanes following us and put their bright lights on behind us. And I told George, I said, hit him, George. He said, no, we can't. I said, George, this is no time to be stopping out here in the middle of nowhere. Hit him. George pulled the car on the goddamn side. They took George out. They had him behind the car right in the headlights so that all we could see was silhouettes. And they just beat George into the ground. I mean, they, they literally just pulverized him out there on the highway, you know. And... Um, the highway patrolman came over to us and and he says, you got 24 hours to get your black asses out of Mississippi. He said, if we ever catch you in here again, we're going to kill you. And that ended that. They, they turned him around and took off and we went and picked George up off the highway, put him in the car, and drove into Jackson. But you can't imagine the fear that's gripping you at the time that that's happening, that you know they there, they want to kill you, they can do it. There's nothing to stop them. And that stuff stays with you a long time. A long time.
George Raymond survived that beating and several others he got in Mississippi jails. But his fellow civil rights workers say he changed from a light-hearted young man to a tense, bitter one. He died of a heart attack in 1973. He was 30 years old. primary organizers of the Southern Civil Rights Movement did not meet in offices in Atlanta or Washington, D.C. or New York. They gathered at night, usually in black churches, in small towns and on rural back roads, to form strategy and gain strength from one another. Music was a source of healing, unity, and motivation. In this 1963 recording, Hollis Watkins, the SNCC staff member we heard from earlier, led the singing at a civil rights meeting in Jackson. In our interview in 1994, Hollis explained that most of the freedom songs were adapted from gospel, blues, and folk music as tools for movement organizing. In the mass meetings, you wanted to raise the interest, you wanted to raise the spirit, and in doing that, it coincided with what would be going on in your daily activities. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round, turn me round, turn me round. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. I'm gonna keep on a walking, keep on a talking. Fighting for my equal rights, or you would say, marching down the freedom lane. And as you sang the different songs, getting the spirit and the momentum going, you could eventually get to the song where you, you, you sang the question that kind of locked people in, you know, and will you register and vote, certain the Lord? Will you register and vote, certain the Lord? Will you register and vote, certain the Lord? Certain is, certain is, certain the Lord. Will you march downtown, certain the Lord? Will the late Fannie Lou Hamer, she was good about that, you know, after we get people to sing in certain songs, and if they made certain commitments in songs, then she would hold them to that after the meeting and everything. And we can these things by registering to vote. I want to know right now how many people will go down Monday morning. If you are afraid, me and my daughter go with them. Fannie Lou Hamer was a potent voice in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement. In 1962, after being recruited by SNCC activists, she went to the county courthouse in Indianola to register to vote. As a result, the white owner of the plantation where her family worked as sharecroppers evicted them. A couple of weeks later, night riders shot 16 bullets into a house where they thought the Hamers were staying, but they weren't there. The following year, Mrs. Hamer was severely beaten in a Winona, Mississippi jail after several people she was with used the whites-only restroom and lunch counter at a bus station. I was in jail with, um, with Mrs. Hamer and, and Winona. Uvester Simpson was a 17-year-old activist at the time. I, was, I remember I really was not 
afraid. I was just, I was more angry than anything because I shared a cell with Miss Heyman. I remember we, I sat up all night with her applying um, cold towels and things to her face and her hands trying to get her fever down and to make, you know, to help some of the pain go away. And the only thing that got us through that was that, you know, we were, we were all in these cells, like, you know, uh, right along a wall and we, we sang. We sang all, I mean, songs got us through so many things. And without that music, I, don't, I think we probably would have, many of us would have just lost our minds or lost our way completely. From June through August 1964, Freedom Summer organizers tried to bring America to Mississippi. At the end of the summer, organizers got ready to place the reality of Mississippi before the country's largest political party, to test that party's commitment to democracy. And Fannie Lou Hamer was about to take her turn on the national stage. White registrars had mostly blocked black Mississippians from registering to vote during the summer, but alongside that effort, organizers had also created that new political party, the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. White registrars had no say in who could join this party. So by August, the Freedom Democrats had signed up 60,000 black members and a few white ones. It was an open democratic contrast to the state's regular Democratic Party, which excluded black people and ran Mississippi's white supremacist society. Lawrence Guillot was the new party's chairman. We paralleled the state organization of Mississippi where we could, where, we, where it was possible to do so and remain alive. We had our registration form. We conducted precinct meetings. We conducted convention meetings. We conducted uh, county meetings and congressional district meetings. We elected a delegation. We then put that delegation on the way to Atlantic City. In August, at its national convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, the Democratic Party was set to nominate President Lyndon Johnson for another term. The Democrats wanted what major parties always want at their conventions, unity and as little controversy as possible. But the Mississippi Freedom Democrats, the MFDP, got in buses and headed for Atlantic City. 64 black people and four whites, some of them, John Lewis remembers, leaving Mississippi for the first time in their lives. And we went to the Democratic Convention, uh, hoping uh, and dreaming that this interracial party, this biracial party, will be seated as the official Democratic Party of Mississippi. Speaking to the party's credentials committee on the first days of the convention, the Freedom Democrats said that unlike the all-white party, they had followed the party's rules. Only their party was open to everyone, so only their delegates had been properly elected. My name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Roosevelt, Mississippi. The Freedom Democrats chose Fannie Lou Hamer as their most important witness before the Credentials Committee. She spoke for eight minutes without notes, her hands clasped in front of her. Mrs. Hamer told the story of her beating in the Winona jail the previous year, her crime again, using the whites-only restroom at a bus station. And it wasn't too long before. 
suppose three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. The jailers put her in a cell where two black men were locked up. The authorities ordered the black men to beat Mrs. Hamer with a blackjack, a police baton. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress. I pulled my dress down and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Matthew Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. She stated the case, uh, and she told her story, and told the story of the people of Mississippi. And we really thought we had won the day. Several Mississippians said they believed that if the Credentials Committee had taken a vote right then, they would have seated the Freedom Democrats and sent the all-white Democrats home. But party leaders intervened. Lyndon Johnson was afraid he'd lose any support he had among white Southerners in the November general election if the Freedom Democrats, the MFDP, were seated. Johnson asked Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey, his choice for vice president, to negotiate with the Freedom Democrats. Bob Moses. Johnson is the president, and Johnson says, if you want to be vice president, then you deliver this. So it's straight power politics. Deliver this The MFDP, you get this monkey off our back. Humphrey's young protege from Minnesota and another future vice president is Walter Mondale. At Humphrey's direction, Mondale offers the Freedom Democrats a compromise. Two members of their delegation, one black and one white, would be seated as delegates at large. Members of the all-white party would be seated only if they promised to support Johnson for president. And the National Party promised never again to seat a segregated delegation. Mondale announced the proposed compromise at the convention. It may not satisfy everybody, the extremes on the right or the extremes on the left. But we think it is a just compromise. Everybody rejected the plan. Most members of the all-white Mississippi party were Goldwater supporters. After Mondale's proposal, all but four of them left the convention. The Freedom Democrats said no to the compromise, too. Unita Blackwell, the organizer we heard from earlier, from Myersville, was one of the party's delegates. Uh, the compromise was, was two seats. And Ms. Hamer said, well, we ain't going to take no two seats. All of us, 68, came sitting on two seats. Uh, 
I would say, first of all, uh, they came with a powerful moral case. I interviewed Walter Mondale in 1994. Recounting uh, the indisputable fact that uh, blacks in Mississippi were sealed out of the Democratic Party, that the delegation that had been officially sent from uh, Mississippi, which was all white, was selected on a rigged discriminatory basis, and that our party finally had to do something about um, uh, what was uh, a moral disgrace. In the end, they just didn't have the guts to do it. This next staff member, Frank Smith. Everybody agreed with us. They all knew it was wrong. They all knew it violated the Constitution. They all knew it had to be done sooner or later. They all knew all of the right things. They just couldn't do it at the time. And uh, disillusioned us a great deal. I think it uh, disillusioned actually the civil rights movement quite considerably. And I think it was a a, a great disappointment. John Lewis. Uh, This could have been, I think, the real final straw that set in a period of discontent and a period of bitterness and a period of deep, deep despair on the part of a lot of young people who have worked so hard. Right after Freedom Summer, the young organizers felt they had taken on American racism and gotten trampled. They'd registered few black voters in Mississippi. Their challenge to the Democratic Party had been turned aside. Dave Dennis was the Mississippi director of the Congress of Racial Equality. But it achieved more than anything else. I think it exposed the system, okay, from top to bottom. And what it did was, was to show that that there was a conspiracy to some extent, unwritten, you know. There was just so far that people were gonna go to make changes, they weren't gonna step on too many people's toes at this time in this country, and really what type of a rock this country was built upon. Others, looking back later, had a more positive take on the summer and what it accomplished. I think that every time we got someone to register to vote, every time we got someone uh, to attempt to register the vote, whether they were successful or not, every time we got someone white allowed to stay in their homes, every time we got someone to stand up and say, yes, I'm going to the mass meeting, we had changed them. You don't do that and then undo it two weeks later and go back and become what you were before that act. People came out of the Mississippi Summer Project and... Uh, looked at the questions that affected our lives ever after, questions about gender, questions about sexuality, questions about war and peace. And um, we had um, real knowledge of a way to function. What we were unable to do in maybe in Mississippi, but we were able to build on Mississippi, build on Atlanta City. And I think we did it in Selma. The Selma to Montgomery March in the spring of 1965 was followed a few months later by the signing of a landmark bill. The Mississippi Summer Project laid the foundation, created the climate, created the environment for the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act to make it possible for hundreds and thousands and millions of blacks to become registered voters. Hey, Chenjirai. Hey, John. This seems like another one of those stories where when you add up the outcomes, (laughs) 
there's good news and bad news, right? And you have to decide which to tell first, but also which is more important, which to emphasize. Yes. Because, you know, we always want to try to take the right lessons from this history. And I think that it's tricky because there was a defeat, right? I mean, we can see that despite all of that organizing by the Mississippi Freedom Democrats, Johnson and them felt like they were facing this dilemma. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the thing is, they knew that the Mississippi Freedom Democrats proposal was to seat the delegation that actually represented the state. That's clearly the more democratic option. Yes, and that it, that it actually followed the party's own rules for how you choose a delegation, unlike the other one. Exactly. And yet, ultimately, they come out with in a way that can only be described as against democracy, really, in that moment. Um, and so I think, you know, you have this example, right, of the Democrats claiming to represent the most vulnerable members of the party, but then they kind of feels like they sold those those members out. Mm-hmm. And then they, they the excuse they give, right, is that they they have to appease this conservative faction within the party. Yeah, and and it's a very real thing for people, right? People in that situation think they're making a hard-headed political calculation. We may have to give up our deepest principles right now, but at least that's going to help us win and hold on to power so we can do more good down the road, right? But how did that work out in 1964? That's the, that's, that's the key question. So <laughs> what you have to pay attention to is that the southern states that they worked so hard to appease, what did they do? Well, Mississippi and three other states ultimately voted for the Republican president, Goldwater, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, who was just coming out with this explicitly racist platform. And they sort of felt insulted that they were asked to be more democratic. So Lyndon Johnson didn't get those electoral college votes anyway uh, after bending over backwards to please the white Southerners uh, at the convention. But mostly here, we're sort of focusing so far on the bad news side of the story. That's right. Yeah. I mean, all of that is true, but I still think that that's a short-sighted way of understanding the legacy of Freedom Summer. So there's a longer and wider story about that that has to be told. And one place that you might start is like, you know, in the process of that really contentious convention, the DNC offers the Mississippi Freedom Democrats this compromise, right? They say, well, we'll see two of your delegates. Mm -hmm. They won't have voting rights and all this other stuff. And then maybe next time or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the Mississippi Freedom Democrats reject that, right? You know, I mean, you could just see Fannie Lou Hamer and I'm like, I didn't come all the way up here for this, you know? Mm -hmm. And, but that compromise that the DNC offered sets a precedent that over time transforms the delegation process and ultimately transforms the Democratic Party itself. It it winds up becoming kind of institutionalized in 72 when they create like this McGovern-Fraser commission to figure out, to to look at sort of contentious moments like that. And once that stuff is institutionalized, it paves the way for this like unprecedented increase of black elected officials at the local level, some at the national level, judges, etc., um, and their policies really do make a difference in a number of ways. Yeah. So it's really it's it's a really powerful legacy of the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the longer view, there's an aspect of the Mississippi Summer Project, Freedom Summer, that we really haven't even mentioned up to now. Uh, and you and I agreed we have to at least touch on it here. And that is the Freedom Schools. 
That's it. You know, I mean, again, this is one of the limited ways that I think sometimes people only look at the success of things in terms of like specific electoral victories or something. But, you know, social movements are also like these places where people are learning new strategies, new ways to organize. And the Freedom Summer was a really incredible example of that. So you have this while they're doing the voter registration and building the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, some black civil rights workers and white student volunteers actually spent the summer running these schools all over Mississippi. They invite black children to spend their day at those schools. They're teaching black history, including African history. They're talking to them about the political and economic realities of Jim Crow. And, you know, the goal was really to plant seeds in the minds of those young people who were definitely not supposed to think for themselves according to the racist power structure. Yeah, exactly. The The education system was not only profoundly, they, actually the, the white schools got four times the funding that the black schools got. And even the white schools were poorly funded. That's right. So imagine, right? And then, and then also the schools, Mississippi schools at the time, uh, did not teach foreign languages and they didn't even teach civics. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you see scholars and people who live through that and they say, you know, this was a system explicitly designed to stifle independent thought and self-determination. I mean, how do you not teach somebody civics, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like... Yeah. yeah, so the freedom schools were part of a really a long-term strategy built into Freedom Summer to really build democracy by creating politically aware young black citizens who would understand that they had to get involved and to stay involved if if this if their world was going to change. Yep. It's really just interesting, brilliant grassroots movement building strategy. That's right. And you know, all those things like protest and that deeper organizing inspires student struggles beyond the Southern Southern movement, right? You see it in groups like the Students for Democratic Society, the Northern Student Movement, mm. et cetera. And in some of those movements, right, they're, they're also taking it past simply electoral politics. I mean, even like looking at the school and other places, right, right. as sites for, for expanding democracy. Um, but I do think it's important that in the wake of what would seem like a I mean, what was like a devastating electoral defeat at the convention? The SNCC leaders still don't cede the territory of the vote. That's really important, right? They don't give up on electoral politics because they understand it's too important. It's, you know, and and that effort that starts in Jackson actually continues years later in other places, right? Hmm. One of the most important places is the Lowndes County, Alabama organizing. Hmm. Kwame Ture, formerly named uh, Stokely Carmichael and other leaders, went down to Lowndes and formed something called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. The Lowndes County Organization is also the origins of the Black Panther symbol because they choose that symbol. Yeah, and, and I had learned that in the process of doing this Freedom Summer thing. But one, one thing I didn't know that until you told me just recently, the Democratic Party, the all-white Democratic Party in Alabama at the time, its symbol was a white rooster. <laughs> yeah, so Alabama Democrats have a white rooster and a slogan that says, and I quote, white supremacy for the right. <laughs> so white supremacy is in the slogan of the Democratic Party in the 1960s in Alabama. That's right. And so, you know, and then like they kind of get rid of the slogan, but they keep the symbol, which kind of, you know, evokes that slogan all the way up until 1996. Mm. And so... This choosing of the Black Panther symbol was in part a response to that because, you know, they had this saying where they were like, okay, you got a rooster, but Black Panthers eat roosters. 
<laughs> you know. Yeah, right. I, I put my money on the Black Panther every time against the rooster. Right. So that was the origin of the Black Panther being adopted as a symbol, and then it was adopted by the much more famous uh, Black Panthers of Oakland, California. That's right, because you know they became aware of that symbol, and you know the other part of the of the message, which was that you know what happens when a, a panther is backed into a corner, and they have to fight. Right. And so Huey Bobby Seale adopt that symbol. But they also later recruit Stokely Carmichael as honorary prime minister of the party. Wow. So, yeah. But going back to the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, I mean, it wasn't just that they had like a this symbol. I mean, they did some concrete organizing. Right. I mean, in 1966, they registered over 2000 people. Mm-hmm. And then five years later, they elected their own activists as mayor, county commissioner and sheriff. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's not necessarily like, you know, the end of the revolution or something, but it did have concrete effects on black life in that area. Yeah. And when I look at like local politics, I mean, here in Philly, we have, you know, city council members like Helen Gim, Kendra Brooks, who was recently elected, uh, Larry Krasner, our DA. I mean, whether we're talking about sanctuary cities, the coronavirus relief. That ability to control politics at the local level has been really important for vulnerable groups to push back when the national party feels that their demands are too radical. Mm. And I think this is important, this point you're making, um, because I think a lot of people look at, we look at mostly at politics at the national level, and and we think that what matters um, are the leaders themselves, who, who are we going to vote for, the actions they're taking, and people out in the world maybe engaging in activism at the local level, but that's mostly about local issues and doesn't really have much to do with what's happening nationally, right? It's That's kind of a separate thing. And I think that what can get lost in those narratives is the way that local activism really can make stuff happen at the national level too. And this is a, really a powerful example. Another thing we haven't mentioned yet is that it was during the summer of 64, in July of that year, that Congress passed and Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, huge landmark legislation, along Mm. with the Voting Rights Act of 65, the other major piece of legislation of that period that really dramatically pushed civil rights ahead in this country. Remember, the Civil Rights Act banned segregation in public institutions and it outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, sex, religion, or national origin. That law was passed because of activism by black folks in places like Birmingham and Alabama. People forget that Kennedy was dragging his feet on civil rights during the first couple of years in office, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, people people like Martin Luther King weren't too sure about Kennedy, actually, you mm-hmm. know? But the movement and the violent white response to it finally forced him to act. Yeah. And then after Kennedy is assassinated... Congress passes, you know, the law and Johnson signs it. Mm -hmm. So it's not some biased partisan argument, right? It's the verdict of history that that is what works. Sustained activism over time, relentless pressure by people's movements on the ground. Hmm. The other thing that it seems like we keep learning, though, Chenjirai, is, uh, is that victories like these, victories that advance democracy and equality, they're never won permanently, are they? No. It's a history of struggle, you know, and you have to fight to maintain those rights because there's always forces trying to take them away. Hi again, it's Laura Free. 
Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of Amended from Seen on Radio, courtesy of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. You can hear Seen on Radio anywhere you get your podcasts or at seenonradio.org. The episode you just heard is a great reminder that when we talk about social movements, no victory is ever complete. Following the passage of the Voting Rights Act, activists kept pushing to make that legislation work for them and to make American democracy live up to its ideals of equality and justice for all. That work continues today. In 2013, the Supreme Court decided that the southern states no longer needed federal approval to change their voting laws, and that ushered in the modern era of voter suppression tactics. Things like closing polling places in areas where people of color live, or restricting the availability of drop boxes for collecting mail-in ballots. Today, voting rights activists are pushing for the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. It aims to restore the protections of the original Voting Rights Act. Next time on Amended, we'll go back in time again to look at the tactics that were designed specifically to exclude Native Americans from citizenship and voting, and tell the story of a Yankton, Dakota suffragist who set out to change that. Please listen through to the end so you can hear about the incredible people who make Scene on Radio. The show's website, where we post transcripts and other goodies, is sceneonradio.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at sceneonradio. Chandrai is at catchatweetdown. Our editor this season is Loretta Williams. Music consulting and production help by Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. Our theme song, The Underside of Power, is by Algiers. Other music this season by John Eric Cotta, Eric Naveau, and Lucas Bewin. The Freedom Song recordings in this episode were courtesy of Smithsonian Folkways. Archival audio from the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. This episode was adapted from the 1994 documentary, O Freedom Over Me, produced by me with consulting producer Kate Cabot. It was a Minnesota Public Radio production from American Public Media. Big thanks to Michael Betts II for production help in making this adaptation. Seen on Radio is distributed by PRX. The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.